Good morning, church. Good morning. Beautiful morning out there. Um, We are going to take another look at the the book of James. If you've got a Bible or one of those journal uh, Bibles that we've been giving out, you can make your way there. But just before we dive into the next part of of James, I'm going to ask you to, to pray for a special team of people. I'll be taking off this week, and they'll be following a few days later, but we're taking a medical team out to rural Zambia. We've, we've talked about this a little bit before, but there's this very, very rural community with over 3,000 people there who are almost completely unserved at all by any kind of uh, clinic or whatever. So we're, we're going to help them op- open that up. I've got a video that uh, will show you uh, what, through your generosity, has been built out in the middle of <laughs> this rural area. To, to give you an idea, to see these buildings popping up out in Kabansa, it would be the equivalent of like a, a Sears Tower being built in Osage, Iowa or something, where you're like, whoa, what is this? You know, like the people of Kabansa, to, to see this and to know that finally help is coming. Um, one of the Zambian doctors that we're, that we're going to be working with uh, got a hold of me this last week because... He was called out to Kabansi. He lives in Serenje, where the Hope Center is. He got out, called out because two uh, young women died in their pregnancy this last week, and they were sisters. So, so one family, right, uh, faced such a, a terrible loss. And he was saying, uh, he went out there to see what had happened, and he said, both of those preventable, and this clinic is going to make such a big difference for so many. And so he was just saying, thank you for coming even before we get there, right? So when we get there, um, I'm telling you, all of us, every one of us, I'm catching the eye of a couple of them that are going along with us. All of us feel completely overwhelmed and underqualified for everything that we're about to do. And that's why I'm sincerely asking you to pray. because so we don't know what we're going to encounter and, and what we're going to find. But God is the one that has led us to this point. God is the one that has directed and provided. And so we're just looking at him. Guys, when we, do, when we talk about having a ribbon cutting for this uh, clinic, understand the first thing we're doing is worshiping Jesus. People are already being drawn to Jesus because of this. And so it's going to start with a big worship time, and they're already planning baptisms and the gospel going out, right? So Jesus is actually going to be the one. As we're cutting a ribbon, it's going to be glory to what Jesus has done, but uh, just... Pray with us as, as we take off to do what is clearly uh, out of my job description and anything I've ever, ever tried to do or any of the rest of us going. So actually, let's just pray right now about that. Will you join me? Uh, Jesus, we uh, certainly did not aspire to this task. Um, it would have never crossed our minds. But we're grateful, Lord, that you're inviting us into a a whole new venture that you have been planning and you have designed, and we just get to step into it, Lord. So um, help us to make much of you and to draw all attention and honor to you. And every time we feel incapable, help us just to smile and nod and say, that's because we are incapable. (laughs) And so we're looking to you to give us the strength, the wisdom, the discernment, courage, everything we're going to need along the way. And now, even in this moment, Lord, um, you've got some work to do in us. Um, This little book of James is so powerful, so packed with supernatural 
life-transforming power. I pray, Lord, would you give us the eyes to see that and the ears to hear that? We get way too good, Lord, at kind of putting up our defenses and insulating ourselves from what you really want to do, the deep work that you really want to do in our souls. And I pray, Lord, right now that by your Holy Spirit, would you just break through those defenses and, and, and get our attention, Lord, get our attention with your word because these are, these are important truths you're bringing to us. So by your spirit, give us the appropriate amount of, of, of a teachable heart, Lord, a broken and contrite and teachable heart so that you can speak and we're immediately going to be responsive to it, Lord. That's, that's our prayer. So would you do that for us, God? We celebrate you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So James chapter 1 is where we're heading. Uh, if you remember three weeks ago when we opened uh, this book of James, I warned you, right, that he's, he's, he's writing, especially for people with a short attention span, right, that he's just going to be moving from one thing to the next. In fact, we're 11 verses into chapter 1, and he's already switched topics three times, all of which have been really important, really powerful. We've needed every one of the things that he's, he's brought to us. So he's going to be doing that again, but uncharacteristically of James, he's going to do a little review for us before he introduces the very next topic. So um, if you look at chapter 1, verse 12, here he's going to do just a quick little review of something he had just said at the beginning of the chapter. Here's what he says in James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So those words should sound a little bit familiar. Even the way that he is, is writing should sound familiar. That's because he's, he's picking up uh, uh, like a, a way of writing that's deeply anchored in the Old Testament. But especially it should sound familiar if you've read his older half-brother, Jesus. Um, so Jesus, remember the very first sermon that he ever taught, the Sermon on the Mount. He starts with these very familiar words, words like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Blessed are the humble. Right? He goes on, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. This upside-down kingdom that Jesus introduces first, like, wait, blessed are those who are mourning? Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty? He says, oh, yeah, 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 lean in. I want to teach you a whole new way. So what I'm saying is when you get to James chapter 1, he's picking up that same kind of theme, and he's saying, blessed are you who endure trials. That is so counterintuitive, right? That is so contrary to the way we think. We think, oh, somebody's going through a trial. Oh, those poor people. Oh, man, what a bummer. Or poor me, I'm going through a trial. He's saying, no, 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 no. You've got to think differently. Blessed are you. And it's a quick way just to remind us of what he said. Because if you endure, if you have that fortitude through this testing time, you're going to find maturity. You're, you're going to find that you're going to be completed in your faith, in ways that you couldn't have been completed another way. In fact, you're even going to find joy in that trial if you lean in. And now he adds, if you have that fortitude, if you lean onto Jesus, hold his hand through this, this trial, there's a crown of life waiting for you. So along the way, maybe you're hitting a trial or something and, and you do it, you know, poorly at first. You stumble around at first. He's like, oh, no, no, it's okay. I got you. I got you by the hand. Um, I, I think maybe one of the reasons that James 
hits pause and, and reminds us of what he's already taught us just a few verses earlier is because it might be that between when you first heard him teach us that three weeks ago and now you've already forgotten that foundational truth that's supposed to just reverberate through his whole book. And maybe the reason you've lost sight of that a little bit is because in the meantime, a new trial has slipped onto your path. So we just had connection group a couple nights ago and, uh, you know, we're, I, I've got the discussion questions and we're going to, you know, dive into what have you been learning through the book of James? And then as, as we start talking, two of the couples, since we met previously in that time, have entered into and encountered brand new trials that suddenly the tears are flowing, we're putting them in the middle, praying over them, right? Because when the words first came from James a few weeks ago, those things weren't true. Now they are, and now they're having to be kind of responding to this brand new thing. So maybe, maybe that's you as well. And so James is patiently, you know, compassionately reminding us, hey, trials are going to be part of your life journey as a Christ follower. That, that doesn't give you an exception clause to trials. In fact, you might have more trials now as a Christian. That's what's going on with these people at least. Because they're Christians, new trials are coming into their path with persecution, etc. That's going to be how we are. So we have to learn how to lean into him. I, I love that there's this verse in Psalm 37 that I think informs this idea as well. I was thinking of it this week where it says this, a person's steps are established by the Lord and he takes pleasure in his way. I want you to let that sink in. God is taking pleasure as you're taking these steps. Though he falls, he will not be overwhelmed because the Lord supports him with his hand. Here's what he's saying. You're going along and you kind of stumble a little bit. Like you're, you're trying to do right, but that moment of insecurity or unbelief or being overwhelmed hits you. You don't look up and see your father going, oh, haven't I taught you? No. You look up and you see a father delighting in your way. And actually, as you start to fall, he actually tightens his grip and lifts you up and puts you back, right? That's the picture of God that, that James wants to be reinforced in our minds. Endure. Keep going. Even if with faulty steps at times, keep going because he loves you, he's got this, and he's got a crown of life ready for you. So now what we're going to do is see the next piece that he's going to add to that theme. All right, so let's, let's look at James 1, starting in verse 13. Just a couple of verses here. <clears throat> verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. No, each person is tempted when he is drawn away enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown... It gives birth to death. So these three verses, I, I call this, this whole section a pathology of sin. A pathology of sin. The reason is, maybe I'm hanging out with too many doctors to get this idea of pathology in my mind. It's not exactly a word I would have commonly used you know, before. But pathology is this. It's the study of the origin, the nature, the course of diseases or sometimes injuries. In other words, a pathologist is trying to figure out where does this come from? Because if we could figure out what the starting point is, if we could figure out where it comes from, maybe we could prevent, like, here are these presenting symptoms, 
But man, how did we get here? If I, if I take a journey back to find out how this started, maybe we could cut it off there and, and this wouldn't happen again to the next person, right? That's what a pathologist is. So, so James is going to be like our spiritual pathologist. He's going to help us understand why we would end up on, on the path that it, he's describing here. Because here's the deal. James, James, it's almost like all of us hit a trial, okay, some testing, and we've got these two paths in front of us. We can choose one way or the other. The first path he's already been describing, that path of fortitude and perseverance and clinging onto him, and it ends in joy, right, and maturity. That's one path. Now, here in this section, he's going to describe the other path, the wrong path, the path that you want to avoid, the path that ends up in evil desire and sin and even death. He's, he's, he's wanting to do this. He's wanting to say, Christian, remember, he's talking brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to show you where that path comes from. It ends in death. But I want to back it up. I want to show you the root of that so that you can stop before you ever go too far down that path. Does that make sense? So I already, I've already described this path. This is a dangerous path. And I, I, want, I want to help you cut it off at the root so you don't go down there. So that's what we're going to do. The first thing that he says, starting in verse 13, is this. This is the first of the steps down that bad path. You start believing that God is the one baiting you into sin. You start imagining that all this is happening because God is trying to trip you up. God has some evil intent. God is the one baiting you into sin. Here's what he says in verse 13. Look, no one undergoing a trial should ever say, oh, I'm being tempted by God. No, no, no. God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. The reason James is telling us that is the human experience. We start hitting a trial, things start getting uncomfortable, and you know what you and I often want to do? We want to start blaming someone. We want to start finger pointing. We want to start becoming the victim and it's somebody else's fault. And so sometimes we go right to the top and we start getting mad at God, right? This trial is hit and it's all of a sudden God's fault. And James wants to set the record straight. God is not, that's not the way he operates. In fact, he's, he's tapping into the truth that we open in the, see in the opening pages of our Bible. So sometimes people even say, why would God even have a world where temptation exists? Why is this? Why would God be so cruel as to put temptation in our path like this? Now, I want to set the record straight. Like James, go back to those opening pages of your Bible, and you're going to find this. God is actually baiting us to do the right thing and enjoy him, not sin. So Adam and Eve are brought into this garden. This garden, horizon to horizon, is filled with incredible trees. It says every one of those trees is beautiful to look at, aromatic to the smell, beautiful choice fruit coming out. Oh, and one of the trees in the middle of that garden is the only one of those that is forbidden. But all the rest, so sometimes we, we turn it upside down in our minds, and maybe it's, you know, Sunday school pictures you've looked at or whatever, where you've got all these scrub trees and, you know, worthless kind of trees. Oh, but there in the middle of the garden is this glorious tree, and it's just so inviting, right? And so, well, of course we're going to make our way to that tree. That's not the picture that's painted for us. The picture is painted for us that there's this whole, again, horizon to horizon of awesome trees, and only one little tree. It doesn't even say it's bigger, more delightful. More fruit. God has actually stacked the deck for you to succeed. 
stack the deck for Adam and Eve to just enjoy the thousands of trees and not the one. But what they do? They went off on their own. We've got to stop imagining that God is the one baiting us to sin, trying to get us to sin. Like it's not his fault. It doesn't minimize the trial, but here's what I'm saying. James, let James' words sink in profoundly because this is a really important first step that we all, many of us take. When you start looking at God as the adversary rather than the ally during this trial, you have started to take your steps down the wrong path. The minute you start imagining, oh, God is the adversary in this whole thing, I'm actually mad at God. The moment you take that first step, you are in a pathology way. You're taking your first step toward sin and death. So he wants to shoot straight with it. Don't ever say that. He says, don't, don't start getting that in your mind because that's maybe where you're going to go. Okay, let's look at the next one, that pathology. Start believing God's baiting you to sin. Second thing that he brings up is this. Next, you start feeding your inner desire for evil. You start feeding your own inner desire. Look at verse 14. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. So this is not to say that there isn't temptation like out there, some outward, you know, stimulation, some, some, some forces out there trying to be. It's not to say that there aren't real people out there, or real temptations, but it is to say those temptations only work if you are feeding your inner desire for evil and want that. So I, I was hanging out with my, uh, my daughter, Audrey, yesterday. She's part of a Veritas family. She's got two kids of her own now. But when she was a little kid, uh, so we had this thing where we wanted to teach our kids to learn how to eat everything put in front of them. And, you know, uh, thought, when you go to somebody's house, don't turn your nose up. Just... So with, with Audrey, green beans, she hated green beans. Like if you ever held a green bean up to Audrey, you wouldn't get her like, oh, give me. Like we would get to the point where I'd like, a green bean, please, for the love of God and all that is holy, will you just take a green bean? Like cut it in half. I cut it in three. Like any... And she'd be like, <laughs> you know, the gag reflex and all this stuff. So I'm just saying, if you held up a green bean to Audrey, there, there'd be no desire at all. But hold up a candy bar in front of Audrey, right? Late, later on, you know, when she's out of the high chair, hold up an American Girl doll, whatever, you know, oh yeah, you know, arms open wide, I want that. Here, here's what I'm saying. James is trying to say, it's not that there aren't stimuli out there, but the question is, are you feeding your desire for the wrong stuff? Are you feeding your desire for things that are actually evil? So, um, Again, back to the very beginning, these foundational truths that James is just reminding us of. Go, go back again to Genesis, and, and if you remember Genesis 4, which follows Genesis 3, remarkably, um, when you get to Genesis 4, sin is already brought into the land, so now you've got the Cain and Abel story. And if you remember right, Cain makes the wrong choice. Cain does the wrong thing, and now he's in trouble. But here's what it says in, in Genesis 4. It says this, Cain was actually furious. Cain is the one looking despondent. He was the one that did wrong, right? But no, he's put out by it. But the Lord goes to him. The Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? Why do you look so despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Look at that just word picture. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 
Yes, that temptation is there. Yes, there's sin crouching at the door. You've got a choice to make right now, Cain. You've got a choice to make. What are you going to do? God is always giving you the way out. God is always reminding you that you don't have to cave, right? But what are you going to do? So the question is, what evil desires are you feeding in your life? What evil desires? So, you know, be honest about this. What kinds of things are you, are you feeding? And I'm telling you, it might be that we get all focused on blaming God because it distracts us from having to do the real work of looking in our own souls of the choices that we're making, right? If I put all my attention at venting at God like, God, it's your fault, then I'm not taking enough time to look in the mirror, right? God is there asking us to make the right choice, but here we are starting to feed our inner So this pathology, right? Starts by, I somehow start blaming God for this trial and, and this temptation, even like as if he's trying to get me to sin. Next thing is, I start feeding my own evil desire for sin. The third thing that James says is I finally end up acting out on this now well-fed desire. I act on it. Verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown... It gives birth to death. James, in his very straightforward, in-your-face language, is saying, if you don't cut off your evil desires, the inevitable next step is acting on them. If you keep you know, staring at those evil desires, feeding those evil desires, pouring gas on those evil desires... The next inevitable step, don't be shocked, the inevitable next step is you're going to act on them. M Matthew Henry uh, wrote so many years ago that all of this stuff is just, you know, free. <laughs> uh, you, can, you can get his commentaries for free, wrote back in the 1600s. Here's what he says. Sins are like circles in the water when a stone is thrown into it. One produces another. When anger was in Cain's heart, murder was not far off right? It's again a, a theme that Jesus picks up in the Sermon on the Mount, but when anger was in Cain's heart, murder was not far off. How many times do you think Cain played out the scenario of what he was going to do to Abel, right? How many times do you be like, well, maybe if I brought him out into the field, maybe, maybe if I took him to this one spot, maybe, how many times did he feed this evil desire before finally the next inevitable step was act on it and do it, right? So James is actually asking you to consider how many times do you start dreaming about those evil desires and feeding those evil desires and then you act on it? And the very next step after you've fed them and acted on it in the pathology of things is you die spiritually. You die spiritually. Still blaming God every step along the way. You die spiritually, and you're still blaming God. Suddenly, you're the victim, right? Suddenly, well, God, it's you that brought her into my life, right? Remember back in, again, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. Oh, it's the woman you gave me, right? It's a, somehow, some way, you make the critical, but it's God's fault. And so you are dead spiritually and still blaming God. Well, it just happened. It was like it was meant to be. 
I was made this way. That's why I'm acting this way. I was made this way. You know, every time somebody says, I was made this way, what the implication is, right? There's a creator that intended for me to act out in these ways, right? It's God's fault. God's the one. He's the one pushing me. Why, did, why didn't God stop me? If there's a God of the universe, he could have intervened. He could have stopped me from doing it, because, but he didn't, right? And so, so the whole time we are just decaying. We're on this spiral of death and still shaking our fist. And James is trying to say, you guys, this, these are hard words. I hope that they're landing on you the way they have been on me all this week. I hope that you're able to take responsibility because James is just saying, you know what? You didn't listen to God. He was, he was actually baiting you down a path toward joy and endurance and maturity. You said no. You said, actually, what the serpent first said to Adam and Eve, you want to be like God. You want to call the shots on your own. You want to rewrite the rules. Now here you are, dying spiritually. So James brings us, appropriately, this bad news right? Like any good doctor, like any good pathologist, what he's trying to do is say, I just need to tell you what's true. Here's what has happened, and here's what's true. They got to deliver the bad news, but here's the beautiful thing. We need it, right? We need the bad news in order to kind of wake us up and give us ears for the good news, because here's the thing James wants us to know. There is an antidote all the time. There's always the, the, the antidote on the ready, and it is what he talks about in the very first verse, James, a servant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is our antidote. Hear, hear me out. You have not outsinned your opportunity to come home. You haven't. Jesus knows how to bring the dead back to life. Even if you have followed this prescription for the bad path that he's just laid out, even if you are way down that path, I am telling you, um, you know, there are, there are pathologists, there are doctors that have to have the hard, hard task of sitting somebody down and saying, actually, here's what's going on, and there is no hope, right? It's too far gone. There's nothing we can do. The, you will never hear that from Jesus, ever, ever. In fact, there's this beautiful couple of verses from Romans chapter 5. I, wa I want you to hear this out. Romans chapter 5 says this, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. You, you think you've piled up sin and that somehow this, this weight of sin is too much and it, it can never be taken away because you don't know how much I've done. No, no, no. Where sin multiplied because you multiplied it, grace can overcome it. <laughs> it, it the super abound in grace. He says this, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life. No, you've been reigning in death. I'm telling you, Jesus is offering life through Jesus Christ our Lord, it is never too late. Even if you've gone way down this path, sin has become fully grown and, and has, has birthed death. Even now, if you cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, look what I've done. And it's me that has done it. If you have the courage to actually stand before Jesus and say, look what I have done. He doesn't look down at you and say, hey, I told you so, <laughs> all right? Jesus says, yeah, I know. I've been watching, and that's exactly why I died for you. That's exactly why I've come, because you were never going to be able to dig yourself out of that pit. 
You are never going to be able to dismantle that pile of sin. That's why I came to crush it and to set you free. In fact, I've got a crown of life that I've been polishing up <laughs> that I, I'm just so eager to place that in your head. What, a crown? No, haven't you seen my mountain of sin? Haven't you seen all the wrong choices I made all the way? Oh, yeah. <sighs> Gone. I've got this crown I want to put on your head. Is that amazing? That's amazing grace. So what I want to do in the last couple minutes I have is, is have you stand with me. I, w- I would love for us to pray about this. Because I hope that in the best way possible, you're maybe feeling the weight of the choices that you've made. The unbelief, the stumbling around, even the sin, the temptations, the desires that you've just been feeding and feeding. I hope that you're feeling the weight of that, which only sets you up to run hard and fast into the arms of Jesus to find life that is truly life. So let's pray together. Let's pray. Jesus, I love the fact that the next song we're going to sing to you, Lord, is amazing grace. (laughs) That is precisely the song that we should be singing after this word comes to us, Lord. Because we just kind of, we put the blindfold on ourselves. That's why we were blind. We just kept turning a blind eye to what is true. We put our hands over our ears. We didn't want to hear what was true. We just kept going and feeding our evil desires, and we got ourselves in such a bad way, just the stench of death. And then we turn, and we see you, Jesus. Arms open wide. Saying, yeah, I know. I've been watching. Come home. Just come home. I forgive you. Those words... May this be a magical moment of receiving your amazing grace. Getting off that path. And we, we can't get, get be, be rescued from that path. Like you take us by the hand, get us off that path, put us on the path of life and freedom and joy. And that's something only you can do, Lord, and that's why we come to you. So as we sing this song, Lord, it be from the depths of our hearts amazing grace it's ours and we love you for it Lord we pray in your name